morning, church. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. The last time I was with you, I spoke to you from John's Gospel in John chapter 1. We were looking at the Master's plan for discipleship. I think I mentioned during that sermon in both locations that there were questions that needed to be answers, answered beyond Jesus' plan, which was revealed as come and see, follow me, abide in me, and go and tell. Of course, one of those is what we've sung about today, and that is what I think I shared in my first sermon with you, Romans 8, 29, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and 1 John 3, 2, which talks about the past, the present, and the future plan of salvation. The past plan in Romans 8, 29, talking about the Father's plan for justification to declare us innocent of our sin through the work of His sacrificing His Son on the cross. And the Bible calls that justification, which has been in the heart of God since the beginning of His creation. The, the second verse speaks to us about His work today, sanctification. If you're a follower of Jesus, then the work of sanctification is ongoing, as Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, day by day, with ever-increasing glory, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So Romans 8.29 says that in the past, the Father ordained these things to declare us innocent, though guilty, in order that we might be like Christ. And then day by day, the Spirit of God is working that we might be like Christ and then, of course, John, in that grand eschatological vision, describes for us, brothers and sisters, we do not know what we shall yet be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Again, the idea of like Him. But this time, in eternity, as we celebrate today, those who have achieved such a great glory... And this is all that we might be like Christ. Again, it goes back to the theme of discipleship, which I think is a very good beginning point for you as a church as you have now had opportunity to hear the vision, to receive the vision, and began to discuss the vision of your collective direction that you are going as a church ministry. And as that vision is unrolled and understood in year one, I think a very good beginning point, the beginning point of Jesus himself in John 1 and his ministry was to make disciples. Now, the second question that I raised is the one that's before us today, and that is the idea of what is a disciple. A very important question, one that requires a definition. Maybe even you this morning would pull out a piece of paper or write there in the sermon notes area in your worship guide or pull out your phone and began to let your fingers do some typing 
Because obviously Jesus knew how to take a big crowd and turn it into disciple-making work. He knew how to take a resurrection appearance and turn it into a disciple-making work. The, the obvious work of the early church and the 3,000 converts that followed Jesus, it was obvious in Acts chapter 2 that they knew how to take this glorious gospel and turn it into a disciple-making work. But the first and maybe most important question that you and I have to answer is, what is a disciple? Now, in the shortest of words, it might be described as a follower. Now, that sounds familiar to our ears today, doesn't it? Because we think in terms maybe for you of social media, we hear the, the word follower quite a bit, or friends quite a bit, or connections quite a bit, and likes quite a bit. We, we know on Facebook we have friends, on LinkedIn we have connections, on Twitter and Instagram we have followers, on TikTok there are views or followers, on Snapchat friends created stories, chats, and created memories, and the like, and on and on and on it goes. But let's be honest, being a follower of Jesus is more than just pushing a button and saying, this is what we like. Let me ask you again, what is a disciple? There was a young man in my church many years ago who was eager to grow in his Christian faith, and he brought to me a list of things that he had made that he was going to give up in order to follow God. And he said, Pastor, I'm going to come forward Sunday morning, place this on the altar, and, and I am seeking to be a follower of Jesus, and these are all the things I'm going to stop doing. And sure enough, on a Sunday morning, he came forward, knelt at the altar, and left a piece of paper there of all the things he was going to stop doing. He picked the paper up as he left and went away for several weeks. He came back a month or so later and said, you know, Pastor, that was a very unsatisfying experience. He said, so I've been thinking about it. Now I've made a list of all the things that I'm going to do for God. And he showed me his list. He came forward, he put it on the altar, picked it up after church, and the cycle repeated itself about a month later. He came back and said, this is a very unfulfilling experience. I shared with him how the Pharisees had done a similar thing, made their list of do's, made their list of don'ts, and how they presented them to God and how Jesus approached them. And I said, hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you take a piece of paper, sign your name at the bottom of it, and leave it blank and say, God, for the rest of my life, you fill in what you want me to be, where you want me to go, and how you want me to live. He came to see me a few weeks later and said, that is the most satisfying faith and obedience-oriented exercise I've ever done. Let me ask you again, what is a disciple? John Ortberg, in his famous book on discipleship, says, quote, the Bible indicates that the disciples were with Jesus for about three years. Let's assume they spent about 10 hours a day 
for the sake of argument, let's say they had a couple of days off each month. That would give them about 340 discipleship days each year. Let's do the math. 10 hours a day, 340 discipleship days a year times three years, 10,200 hours. Malcolm Gladwell, the common business writer that's well-known in culture today, says there's a law of 10,000 hours which kicks in saying, we usually know what we're doing after 10,000 serious hours of giving time, attention, effort, faith, and obedience to something, I would suggest to you that the disciples learn through the highs and lows of walking with Jesus across those 10,000 plus hours exactly what Jesus meant when he said, you are my disciples. Take up your cross and follow me as a disciple. Unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother and everything, even your own life, and cherish me more than it, you cannot be my disciple. I think the disciples understood something about discipleship that maybe in 21st century America we've struggled to understand. Let me ask you again, what is a disciple? If it's not likes and lists and laws, maybe it's our loves. Sam Kiefer, a well-known Jewish rabbi who shepherded the flock of B'nai Aviv in South Florida for a number of years today, lives in Jerusalem and exercises his gifts of teaching there, loved to tell stories. He loved to tell stories about Catholic priests, Protestant ministers, and Jewish rabbis to teach lessons. I would often pick Sam up at the front door of B'nai Aviv, and he would get out of his office, and we would go to lunch. And one day he was trying to press a particular point in a sermon that he was trying to teach. And he said, perhaps you can find this useful too, Pastor. He said, there was a Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, and a Jewish rabbi taking a walk together in the woods when they came across a bag of money, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they did not know what to do with it. The Baptist pastor put together a circle of rocks and said, I know what to do with it. Let's throw the money up in the air. And anything that lands outside the circle of rocks we'll keep for ourselves. Whatever lands inside the circle of rocks we'll give to charity. The Catholic priest said, oh, no, no. He said, the majority of that money is definitely going to land inside. It's got to be a little more balanced than that. Let's let whatever lands inside we'll keep and whatever lands outside the circle we'll give. And the Jewish rabbi just shook his head. And with his little smirk, Sam Kiefer shared with me, the Jewish rabbi had a much better solution. He said, let's throw the bag of money up in the air. What God wants to keep, he can hold on to. And whatever falls to the ground, we'll keep for ourselves. Sam went on to say to me these words. He said, Pastor, we love to draw circles around the things we're good at and that we like. We place those things inside of our circles and say this is what it means to be what we want to define it to be. But Jesus always challenged his disciples. The thought of dying upon a cross the thought of the hyperbole statement of saying you will hate your father and mother in comparison to follow me. I mean, it just pressed them to the outer limits of understanding what a disciple is. Let me ask you again. 
What is a disciple? Jesus, of course, takes his disciples and over the course of three years teaches them what a disciple really is. He shows them what a disciple really does. He calls out of them discipleship that they never could have understood or imagined, so much so that probably none is stretched further and challenged more than the apostle named Peter. And the passage we turn to today in 1 Peter chapter 2 is what by one 20th century theologian called the most important chapter in all the Bible on discipleship. Not only does he describe in the book of 1 Peter what our purpose is, he highlights it in chapter 2 when he says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps also. And I'll come back to that statement at the end of my sermon today. To follow in his steps. And that's what Peter was challenged to do. And in this chapter, Peter does what I would call some of the simplest, some of the clearest, and some of the most compelling teaching that you will ever find to try to describe for us what a disciple is. Because the use of images have often been utilized in classrooms, by teachers, by philosophers, to try to help us gain an understanding of what it is we're being asked to understand and learn. And Peter, in this particular chapter, is going to give to us six images of what a disciple is supposed to be. He tells us that this is the purpose for which Christ came, and this, this is the purpose of our life. Now, I don't know if you have a purpose or not in life. I don't know if you were sitting in a job interview or if you were in a courtroom and were giving testimony and someone were to ask you, what is your purpose? Could you describe what that purpose is? Jesus would say to us that it is to be a follower of His. And as I shared with you the last time I was with you, a disciple can perhaps best be defined this way, a person who spiritually lives life daily in ways that are compatible with the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. This requires knowledge and understanding of biblical teaching, but that's only the beginning. The ultimate expression of being a disciple is when your lifestyle, your habits, your attitudes, your behavior, and your character all flow out of that relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Peter understood this maybe more than any, any other. I want to read to you and highlight for you as I read the six images of a disciple that are given for us in this passage. Begin with me in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander, here's image number one, like newborn babies long for pure spiritual milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Look at verse 4 in image number 2. And coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice image number three, also in verse five. For you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look at image four in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Look at verse 11 and notice the fifth image. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from lustly flesh or from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Now look at the final image found in verse 13, verse 14 and verse 21. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to governors who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And then he concludes this by talking about the suffering servant in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Here's what I would say we've just read from the Apostle Peter. Peter's manifesto of understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the six images help us to understand exactly what that means. I mean, let's just consider this morning those six images, each one briefly. First, the baby. The baby that is growing. A disciple, you see, is a baby that is growing, a baby that is maturing. Now, obviously, Peter understands this from the very beginning of chapter 2, but also in chapter 1, we find this idea of being born again of the Word of God. And when birth happens, instantly there is the need for, for food and for air and for water and for nutrition. And Jesus would have a similar conversation with Nicodemus when he would say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But you see, just being born isn't the, the focus of what Peter is talking to us about here. He is actually talking to us about the, the nurture and the development or the growing up of those who have been born again. And notice how Peter describes it. There are some things you put aside... And there are some things that you start to do. You rid yourself of these things. And it's quite a list that you rid yourself of. Malice, thinking and longing ill for another. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We set aside those things. But not only do we set aside certain things, but we add certain things to it the things of Scripture, the things of Christ, the things of the fruit of the Spirit. And those things don't automatically or instantaneously appear in our spiritual journey. They have to be nurtured. You know, some people are of, of the opinion that you pray a prayer and then you just let time pass and spiritual growth automatically takes place, but that's not the way the Bible describes it. I heard the Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov, who 
after living in communist Russia for many decades, made his way to the United States for the first time. And as he made his way to the United States, he wanted to go see a grocery store because he had heard about American grocery stores. In contrast with Russian grocery stores where there was no food, in American grocery stores there was believed to be a lot of food. And when he walked in the door, he just said, wow, what a country. He walked up and down every aisle, and he was just so amazed. He was amazed that there was so much milk on the milk shelves. He was even more amazed that there was this thing called instant milk, that you could take powder, pour water in it, and have instant milk. He was so amazed when he went to the egg aisle, he had never seen that many eggs stacked on a shelf, and even beside it, there was an instant egg powder that you could add water to, and and you would have instant eggs turn into eggs, and, and he said, wow, what a country. He made his way to the personal hygiene aisle where he found baby powder. And he thought to himself, wow, what a country. (laughs) You see, it's not an instant, immediate growth and maturity that automatically takes place. As a matter of fact, there must be time and attention. Like given to the raising of a child, there is time and attention. Here he calls it the logikos. The, the, The word logic comes from that, the word Logos that John uses in John chapter 1 to describe Jesus tells us what that is, that we are to crave this pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. But it's not that we just know information about it, but we let the Word of God do the transforming work of God in our lives. I watched this firsthand. My young son, John, who today is 6'3 and 200 pounds, Um, a, a rather large boy, as I look at him, every time I see the size and his strength continuing to grow, I'm taken back to the time when all he wanted was his bottle of milk and he wouldn't eat solid food. So being good parents that we are, we deceived him and we dumped green beans as a trial into his bottle just to see if he would take it. As disgusting as it sounds, I promise you, it tasted even worse and smelled absolutely horrific. He was so pleased to get that bottle. At the end of receiving this huge bottle, we had to cut the top off of the little nipple in the bottle to be able to get the green beans to come out of it. He screamed wanting more and more and more. He couldn't not get enough. And it's an illustration for me living today of what it takes to receive the blessings of the Lord, the pure spiritual milk of the Lord that doesn't just feed our physical selves, but it feeds our heart and our soul. I think this is what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 34, 8, when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now remember, and do not be deceived about who Peter was writing this to. These Christians were being written to in a place and a time of great suffering and great persecution and difficulty, and yet there was a greater work, a bigger thing that God was doing as God was growing them and raising them up. Look at a second image. The disciple is not just a growing baby, but the disciple is a stone that is linked together within God's building. He moves from biology to architecture. He moves from birth and growth to stones and buildings, from the maternity ward to the construction site. And he's not talking about a physical building such as we're in today. He's talking about how your lives are linked together in the true church, the body of the confessing Christian 
body in a church. And he says, this is the eternal work of God that he's building. This is the indestructible church that will be around for all of eternity. And he says that he is the living stone, and our lives are placed like stones, not separate and independent like on the north shore of Hawaii where they stack stones and everyone stacks their own set of stones. It's not like that at all. Our stones are stacked together, linked together A pastor taught me this in Mexico, in Guadalajara, as we were digging a cistern. I was 23 years old, and I was on the end of a pick and a shovel working to dig a 10-foot-long, 8-feet-wide, 6-foot hole into the rocky ground. And it was hard, excruciating work over several days. And once the digging was done, we began to lay the brick. We stretched the string across, began to get a foundation dug into the dirt, and we began to raise the bricks. Mas mesca por favor is a word I'll never forget. More cement, please. And we would bring that cement in and stack the bricks up, and scorpions and snakes would go running as we were building this important reservoir of water for a church. And as the wall was being built, the pastor said this. He'd look at me, and he would say, as he could only say, como la iglesias, como la iglesias. If you're not a Spanish student, you may not know what that means just like the church. Just like the church. One more brick. One more brick in the wall. Just like the church. All inextricably linked together. What are disciples? Well, they're babies that grow. They're stones that link together. But look at the next piece of what he says in verses 5 and verse 9. He says that we are holy priests. We are a royal priesthood. What is a disciple? A disciple is a priest that is committed to worship. Now, we have to understand the nature of worship in the Levitical order, that the Levites were brought in, and they were doing the ordinary work every day in the Temple Mount when animals were slaughtered, and the work of intercessory prayer, and uh, the idea of making atonement, and transferring guilt, and offering thanksgiving was all built into the system of what was being done. And they got to see, these priests did, firsthand the mediating work of God and the sanctifying work of God. They were close. They were privileged. They had a place of distinction. You see, the priests were allowed in the temple. Others could approach the temple periodically. The high priest was only allowed in the Holy of Holies once per year, while even the other priest had to go outside and remain there. But now Peter is saying to us that we are priests with privileges. We are allowed in the temple of the Lord. We have full access to God. I was reminded in Romans chapter 5 that the Bible tells us three things that we have as priests. We have peace with God. We have gained access by faith. And now we can stand in His presence. I want to zero in on that idea of access to God because I think sometimes it is a privileged status that we sometimes do not fully understand. Years ago, when my son John that I was telling you about earlier was just getting into the game of golf, a friend of mine said, hey, I've got some tickets for you for the PGA event up in Jacksonville. 
would you like to go? I said, oh, I'd love to go. He brought me some tickets by to the office. John and I got in the car and we drove up, spent the night in Jacksonville. The next morning, went over to the PGA event at that famed course, Sawgrass. As I went the first day, I stood in line as I thought, my goodness, this is a huge line. It's a hot day. I, I hope my little guy can make it with me. And I leaned forward to the guy in front of me and said, how long is the line? He said, I don't know, but here's somebody we can ask. And we asked this attendant, how long is the line? He said, oh, it's about an hour, hour and a half to get through security. He said, but let me see your tickets. And I showed him my tickets. He said, oh, you have all access. You, you don't have to stand in line. You can go around. So we went around and we were waved right in, stood in line zero minutes. When we came in the gate, they said, um, would you like us to shuttle you over to where you can watch the match? And I said, what does that mean? They said, oh, we've got a golf cart here for you. Would, would you like to go over to someplace? We'll, we'll drive you there. I said, why is that? He said, oh, well, you have all access passes. Oh. I said, I've always wanted to see the 17th green, the island green, the famed green there where thousands, tens of thousands of people are gathered. He said, no problem. We'll go. He drove us away. We got to the stands. We got to the stands, and I showed my tickets, and he says, oh, you have all access passes. Let me show you to a seat. And there were people standing in line, and he ushered us past all of them and showed us to our seats right at the very front and said, I'll send someone over to get your order. I said, my order for what? Any food or beverage that you want. I said, let me guess. I have all access passes. He goes, that's right. Later in the day, I went down to the merchandise tent, and I was going to grab matching shirts, father, son. Isn't that what you do at an event and a day that's so special like that? When I got there, there was a huge line. I'd figured this out at this point. I walked up to somebody and said, I have all-access passes. He said, hey, these are all-access passes, not only for this tent, but you can go up to the clubhouse, and they have special deals and special things for you there. And I walked up to the clubhouse, and what do you think I'd figured out by then? Hey, I showed my passes, and what did they say to me? You have? It was about dinner time. We had shopping bags full of things, and I walked past the dining room in the clubhouse, and... I said, hey, it sure smells good in there. Would these tickets by chance get me in there? And he said, oh, yes. You have. Now, let me leave the golf course as good and wonderful as that might be. And let me tell you this. Do, do you know what Peter says you have with God? Do you know what Paul said you had because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? We have all access to God. That's what a disciple has and enjoys. They're a baby growing, stones linked, priests who are doing the work of the kingdom of God. And now we are witnesses. Look at verse 9. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You belong to Him. Just a few weeks ago, I was up in Maryville, Tennessee, where my family settled after 
fighting in the Revolutionary War. They were given a land grant there, and so our family settled in that part of the world. And as I was visiting the church that my family helped found there in 1782, I was putting some flowers on the graves of family members going back five generations. And as I was walking through that graveyard cemetery, the mausoleum close by, I thought to myself, I know where all my people are. And there's something comforting about that, even with the sense of loss. I know on this All Saints Day, there are probably many of you that find yourself with the same feelings and emotions that I found as I walked even past my mother's gravestone there. But can I tell you that more than just the familial connections that we have on earth, the Bible teaches us that disciples have spiritual connections. I remember the first time that I experienced that. I was going to worship in a really grand church in a cathedral in Budapest in Hungary before the Iron Curtain had come down. And there were a group of saints that were gathering there, worshiping with joy and hope. I didn't understand a single thing that they were singing or saying because I had just landed hours before in the evening before the worship service. But I remember sensing something in common with those believers that subsequently I found was true whether I was worshiping with the Maasai tribe in Africa under an acacia tree or in a small village in the Amazon or somewhere in Siberia or somewhere in Southeast Asia. As I worshiped with God's people, I would find myself saying, these are my people. You see, the Bible tells us that the disciple is a chosen person of God. And now we are His ambassadors. As a matter of fact, when Paul uses this similar idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23, he says that the reason for this identification as the people of God is that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into the glorious light. Growing babies, living stones, holy priests, treasured people, I know we're growing long in our time, and there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation, but bear with me for a couple of moments here. Number five, a disciple is an exile who has a place to belong. I urge you, verse 11, to live as aliens and strangers. Now hear what I have to say here. Aliens in the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, were people who had no rights. Strangers were people who had no homes. He calls us here aliens and strangers. But then he goes on to say, but you have a place where you belong. He uses this image, Jesus does, in the book of Revelation to say that there is going to be a name that is written on you. His name. And it's going to be an indication that you belong. 
that you're accepted, that you're loved. One day, my son came home from school, little Liam. He's probably in first or second grade. And I noticed something was written on him. And it was a little girl who had written her name, Lillian, on him. And I said, Liam, what is that? To this day, I smile when I think of Lillian, the cute little dark-haired girl with dark eyes who Liam always lit up when he saw her because they were just such good friends. And, and here's what Lillian said when I said, why did Lillian write her name on you? Liam told me, recounted, well, Daddy, she said that we just belong together. And she wanted her name to go home with him. You know, there's a similar identification of love and belonging that is associated with Christ writing His name upon us, that we belong to Him and He is identified with us. Here we are, growing babies, living stones, privileged priests, treasured people, disciples in an exile who have a place to belong. Here's the final image. A disciple is a servant that has a purpose. Verse 13, the word submission. Verse 18, the word servants. Verse 21, the suffering servants. It's like the progression of Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 through 5. Is it empties Jesus of himself and of all of his glories to, to become a servant, to die his death. And the Bible is here in Peter's words teaching us the very same thing that we are servants of Jesus Christ. I had this modeled for me in a very strange place, in a very strange way, by a very special person. I was going to uh, work uh, in Chicago, and a pastor friend who's very dear to me, his name's Scott, he and I were really enjoying our work together, and he said, hey, I want to take you to a special place. He said, have you ever been to a Michelin-rated restaurant? I said, no, I've never been to one before, but I've always heard of it, and I'm a real foodie. He said, well, today we're going. So we go in and feel a little awkward, a little out of place, and all the sophistication that's going on in this beautiful restaurant. Scott, after we order, says, hey, I'm going to go to the restroom and wash my hands and I'll be right back. He goes, and then when I see him reappear, I see that he's flagged down by someone in the restaurant. My first inclination was, oh, he knows someone who's dining here. But in just a moment, he begins to take the dishes off the table, lining them up his arm. He takes a napkin and begins to wipe down the table. He carries the dishes back evidently to the kitchen, and then comes and sits down, and I go, Scott, that's one of the most peculiar things I've ever seen in a restaurant. What just happened there? He said, we're just servants after all, aren't we? And tried to blow it off. I said, did that lady really think you worked here? He said, yeah, you know, the white shirt, the black pants. I just kind of fit in with the wait staff. She thought I was wait staff and asked me to clear her table for her, which I did. We're just all servants after all, aren't we? And it doesn't matter if you're on a street corner with a down and out or in a Michelin-rated restaurant with the up and out. We are assured of this. No matter what your financial socioeconomic condition is, we are all out until we know the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He lives within our heart. Scott demonstrated what service really was that day. Isn't that what we just really are as servants? Here are the images. 
Six images of a disciple, a newborn baby with the responsibility to grow, living stones with the responsibility to fellowship, a holy priest with access to worship, a people privileged to witness, foreigners who have a citizenship and home, and servants who are serving the king and his cause. Well, that's the introduction to my sermon today. You'll have to come back another day to hear the actual sum and substance of it, of the three points of what Peter does with it. But let me close with where Peter closes. Verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. Do you see those last three words? Just look at those. Those are some of the most famous three words in the history, lang- history of the English language in Christendom. Anybody heard of Charles Sheldon? Anybody familiar with his book, In His Steps? Anybody wearing a WWJD bracelet today? Yeah. Those words come to us as he preached on a Sunday night about a pastor in Chicago reading a story that the world would just be changed if we only ask, what would Jesus do? And it comes at the end of the most important chapter on discipleship perhaps found in all the Bible. Would you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment as we close? Maybe you would just ask God of the six images Is there an image that I need to focus upon now? God, is there a next step that you want me to take? Maybe you would pose the question that Charles Sheldon did. What would Jesus do? Our Father, as we close our time of worship today and the study of Your Word, I know what the Scripture says, and I claim that promise that the Word of God never returns void. But it accomplishes what You desire. Lord, accomplish what You desire today. For those who hear and receive the Word of God, let them not walk away and forget what they look like and forget what they have heard and fail to apply it, as James says, but instead... May they live with the fruit of righteousness that comes from living in the steps of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.